1962, the world of science fiction was simpler, especially for children. Madeline Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time introduced bright kids to the fantastical concepts of relativity, hyperdimensional travel, and women with advanced degrees. A story of galactic travel and loss of innocence, this book has inspired the ideas in everything from the X-Men to Harry Potter. Back in the 80s, when teachers thought children should challenge themselves with something more than wimpy kids and captains who wear underpants, we had this tome imposed on us. The results were lackluster, but we thought we might have been missing something. So pour yourself Meg's favorite comfort drink of hot cocoa and sneak a little rum in while she's not looking. It's time for episode 56 of Toasting the Classics, A Wrinkle in Time. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic, drink a drink inspired by the classic, and then talk about it and decide whether it's actually a classic. I'm Clint Lanier. Dave MacArthur. D- Dave has recently moved to uh, the big city from the very rural country where I'm at. That is absolutely true. How, how's, life treat- how's life treating you there? I was pretty good. You know, it was the usual complaints that people have about living in New York. You know, it's a, there's a, a lot more rats and garbage than I was used to. And um, <laughs> Right more peaceful confines of uh right. of new mexico you tra- traded jackrabbits and cottontails for rats and, and mice right yeah definitely not, not definitely. quite a was... trade-off if you ask me but no not really there, i mean there's a lot of other stuff i mean like for instance karina's taking alex to broadway tonight just after oh, okay. work they're just going to a show so there's things like that i mean that's what that's what we like that's what we were looking for when we came here right very cool so what are we doing uh what are we doing this time what i chose was um a wrinkle in time by madeline lengel mm-hmm. um which is something that um i never read and it was like all around they made a movie out of it at some point and i don't even remember how it got on my list of things i might do for the show but there it is so i was worried about that like what what made you decide to pick this thing I don't remember why I wrote it down, but when I, I saw it on my list and I was like, you know, I did always mean to read that. I, I had an experience with it. I don't remember if it was fourth or fifth grade, but we were supposed to read it. Everybody else read it and they were talking about it in class. And I spent like a month pretending to have read the book and I never read it. <laughs> um, and I, I read like a little bit of it and I really didn't like it. And I just didn't get into the book and I just wouldn't yeah. read it for some reason. I don't know. I could be very pigheaded when I was a child. I guess it was always just kind of stuck in my craw that I didn't read this book that other people read. So I wanted to read it. Um, right. And it, it's a it's a quality children's novel. I mean, it's a Newbery winner. I don't know. What would you say? Like, it's a sci-fi book, sort of. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it, it's it's a lot of things. Sci-fi is a good way to put it. It's kind of a classic good versus evil type of thing. And it's a quest. Sci-fi uh, fantasy. Sci-fi fantasy. Yeah, it's kind of, it reminds me, it's like a sci-fi version of C.S. Lewis. Yeah, because there's like that's a fantasy book, but there's this if you think about it a little bit, there's like a Christian allegory and it's influenced Uh by that. I think in a different sort of way, this was this was also like that. And I can I kind of read a little bit about the book, the background of the book. And I was like, okay, I'm not the only one thinking this. And the author did sort of acknowledge it, but it wasn't as direct as C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. C.S. Lewis is very, he seems to be very overt. But I always wonder, like, I mean, a lot of the Christian, like the elements of the Christian story, we can just call it a narrative, right? Again, they have a very classical sense of like good versus evil, sacrifice. And so, I mean, you could take, you could take the Christianity part out of it. You'd still have the basic building blocks of really good story, right? Yeah. And C.S. Lewis tapped into that because he was Christian and he, and he was, he made it very explicit that it, that's what he was doing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't see this one as doing that as much. I mean, there were no. parts in there. There are a couple of calls to it, like when Calvin, I think, you know, talks about the angels and stuff, but or as like those three, the three, whatever they are. For the most part, it's just kind of a good versus evil type of thing, which, which again is is sort of the yeah, it's the Christian myth if you want to call it that. But it's yeah, it's. There's a it's lot. Like, of, there's a lot of cultural myths that aren't, you know, Christian that are the same good right. people, right? Um, the yeah, influence. I was thinking the same yeah. thing because definitely Islam would be very similar. Huh? Christianity's like that. Some Hindu? of the various well, the good good versus yeah. evil. I mean, you know, there's... it wouldn't be foreign to those traditions. I don't think. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I didn't really see. There's a couple of explicit references, like when they're talking about the people from Earth who've helped in the fight against good and evil. The first person they mention is Jesus. Right. So right there, that's a pretty express reference. 
that puts it in your mind, but I didn't really see it. There was there was a lot of discussion in various places about whether or not that's what's going on in this. Yeah, so um, maybe we should talk about uh, what happens in this book, just sort of a, a synopsis, because I don't know. Had you read this before, or had you had you interacted with this before? You know what? I I I I remember reading it, and just like you, like it was fifth grade, I think. I was still in elementary school, and I think we read it in. Yeah, fifth grade. It was like this. So yeah, I, I read it. Oh, God, you know, I'm I'm old, man. I'm I'm 47 yeah. years old. And so that's a that's a long time ago for me. So I don't I, I I remembered parts of it and pieces of it. And some parts I was like, did I read this? Because I don't remember this at all, you know. Right. Um right. So it was like coming to it, you know, with fresh eyes for me. And and so it was really interesting, you know. So I guess if you want a synopsis, you've got um, it, it, the focus is on a little girl named Meg, who is uh-huh. sort of different. She's sort of a, I get the sense that she's sort of an, uh, like the ugly duckling, uh, you know, high schooler. Yeah. I think she's like a sophomore or something like that uh, around that age. She comes from a family of different people, different meaning like eccentric scholars, more or less. Like her mom was a scientist and and a PhD yeah. and her dad is a multiple PhD and a scientist. And she has uh, two younger twins who are what you would consider normal, right? Normal kids. They're both athletes and like, they're like very uh, you know, popular in school and, and stuff. And then she has a youngest brother, Charles Wallace, which is annoying that he has two names. And he uh, <laughs> he's like five years old and he's really different and different in that he's like, man, today we would probably label him autistic or something. Like he, he's kind of like the kid from the sixth sense or something. He's like one yeah, of those, yeah, he like, like he has weirdo psychic kids that's yeah, like, or like the kid in Akira. Remember in Akira, the kid that yeah, was psychic, but he has like, like he he like has a penchant for like really big words and uh-huh. you know, and just seems to know things. And so that's the kind of the family. But the twist is that the, the dad's been gone for like five years or four years or something mm-hmm. for most something of like that, most of uh Charles's life, and 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 he's kind of like a hero to Meg. And, and, and like he disappeared under mysterious circumstances, apparently worked for the government as a scientist. There's a, a hint of the Manhattan Project in here where they lived in New Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So I he, like how New Mexico made an appearance. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Right. Yeah. I thought I kind of wondered if that's why you picked this because it had some new. No. But <laughs> so there's that. And then all of a sudden there's these they meet these mysterious people, Mrs. Who, Mrs. What's It and Mrs. Witch who lived in like a, what they called a haunted house, kind of like be, behind their big property. This is like in Connecticut, I think is where it took place. And I wasn't uh, sure. Did they, did they ever say where they, it, it's, I think it's pretty clearly the Northeastern United yeah, States. Northeast, I, I, Connecticut, I think is, is sort of like what sticks out for me. And, and that fits. And so a small town. And, and so they meet these, these mysterious people and they get trans Meg and, Calvin Wallace, and then this other kid named Calvin, who's also attends the school. He's like this athlete and stuff, but apparently right. he's quote unquote different. They never really explain how. Like, I guess he has again a sixth sense type of thing. No, he's just uh, smart. I think he's just supposed to be very intelligent, but he hides maybe, it better than the other kids yeah, do. Or? Maybe so. But they they said like Charles Wallace said like <laughs> you're you're one of us type of thing, or she's not well, they, one of us or something. I, they I talk about they, how they're sports. Yeah, but it's and it took me a second. I was like, "What's a sport?" And I guess I, it seems to me like it's a stand-in for the word mutant. Yeah, right, right. Like, and we'll get to, we'll get to some... that. So anyway, so he joins them, and then they get transported one night uh, to another planet. You know, and yeah. they find out that these mysterious people are like, I don't know. It, was, I, it never really explains it. Like, it kind of leaves it up to you. Like, there's some sort of sort of interstellar being they live on on like a time scale of the entire universe and they have magic powers and stuff you know they're pretty much like supernatural beings of some kind yeah some type of supernatural well this is what makes the book really cool is it's not it's super human natural right Mm, like they are natural beings but the way they sort of talk about it is that they accept the fact that the fact that the universe has all sorts of different types of life forms and that they are just these types of life forms, right? Universal uh-huh. life forms that are not like us. And they have yeah. these abilities to, uh, to, to tasser, as they call it, 
to TASR is to be able to right. transport across time and space. They have the ability, but we discovered like Mr. Murray, that the Meg's father discovered this ability to TASR and he discovered it through physics and through math. Right. So it's a natural thing. It's a naturally occurring right. thing that they've mastered. We haven't, we just learned it. They said we're like ch- children. Playing. It's not like a magical thing. It's like, it's just, taking advantage of unseen dimensions. Yeah, yeah, right. It's a natural thing. Yeah. And so, and that's sort of where the, 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 the title of the book comes from a wrinkle in time. So the way they explain it is like, if you wanted to travel across space from point A to point B, we always thought was like the quickest way to get somewhere. But if you, if you considered, and and they used, I think the, the dress, they used a dress as a, as the example. If you wanted to get from this point of the dress to this point of the dress, logic always dictated that it would from just a straight line would be the quickest way. But what if we wrinkled the dress up, right? right. And so now you take both points and put them together. And so there's one big wrinkle in the dress. And, you just, and now it's the easiest way. You just go over the wrinkle. So that mm-hmm. is like what a tasser is. So that's like what later becomes warp speed and you know, all, everything that yeah. comes out of science fiction yeah, is absolutely. basically that point, right? A wormhole and everything else, you know, we're traveling warp speed and, and so forth. It's the same thing. You know, this is what, 61 or 62? 1962. So it's yeah. right about the same time that the original Star Trek. The original Star Trek, exactly, right. Yeah. So, but it's the same concept that if you decreased the amount of space between two points, then you could go easily between them, right? And so that's what a tasser, that's what tassering is. You come to find out that the that the father is being held on this world called Kamazots uh, right. by this thing called it. And it's it is this dark power, and there's this, and you find out that there's this like eternal struggle between light and dark and it as part of the dark dark worlds and light worlds the first couple of times they mentioned that mm-hmm. when, when they're when they're on kamazots and they're like oh i'm going to send you to it mm-hmm. i was reading it as you're going to get sent to it because i was thinking it's <laughs> like being the it department i read it that way until i don't know 20 pages later there was a way of phrasing it. i was like oh i'm supposed to read it as just it okay got it <laughs> right right but actually i can see why you would think that i'm gonna send you to it that'd be terrible in itself yes that sounds oh. kind of terrifying doesn't yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah. but that anyway so that, that's sort of the synopsis so they have to they have to go rescue the father you know mayhem is, ensues and you know and, the, and the, the characters go through their own especially mag goes through her own trial in the course of her journey how did you feel about the story? It was interesting in that, I mean, you're reading it with hindsight. It, it's sort of hard. I can see why reading it in fifth grade, before you're exposed to as much sci-fi as I've been exposed to, or definitely you, sci-fi yeah. fiction, how it would be really novel, right? But even, yes. you know, I don't even know if my, my kids reading it would think, oh, wow, you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. But certainly in like 61, yeah, that would this would be pretty high concept stuff, right? Because yeah, absolutely. Um, I was thinking the exact same thing because I was thinking just being introduced. So the intro being introduced to the idea of like multi dimensions and things like uh-huh. that, and relativity, and and like the idea of how big the the universe is, and that there are multiple galaxies out there and stuff like that. All that would have been pretty fresh in 1962 to a reader, yeah. I think, especially a child reader. I think so. You know? Yeah, I think, I, I, I think absolutely. I, I read this and they I remember the point where they lost me. I realized that when I was reading this again, it's when they get to that first other planet and it's very magical. Oh, yeah, right. And the right. aliens are sort of the aliens are sort of vaguely described and they're singing and things like that. Yeah, and I was, yeah, it's just right. like I remember I remember thinking like this is like rainbows and unicorns. I'm not yeah. interested in this book. And I and I think I kind of put it down at about that point, which is about 60, 70 pages in. Yeah. And I can see that. And she does she does something that I find really annoying and that I hate it when uh, books do this because it's a complete cop out. She right. says something to the effect of, and then they started to sing. And there are no words in English. Oh, I hate that. To, yeah. to describe how beautiful it was. It's like Okay, that's just ridiculous. Come on, that's that's yeah. the biggest cop out in the world, right? Because you, yeah. you can say that about anything, you know, about beauty, you know, how somebody looks or you know, whatever. There are no words to describe the beauty of this. Yep. Well, you know, if, if you're writing it and, and you're taking the time to you, that's just a cop out, you know. And so she does Absolutely. that. And I hated that. I was like, oh, 
you know, HP, we did an episode. I did an episode with guest host about HP Lovecraft and that's, mm -hmm. he does that all the time. It's like the big monster shows up and, oh, this monster was so scary looking. I can't even describe it to you. <laughs> right. Every time, that. every time he does yeah. that, I'm like, that's your job. Yeah. As a writer. You are a writer. Your, your job is to describe it to us. Right. That's right. So yeah, it, this is the only case when I wish that we had, uh, what's his name from Fahrenheit 451. I was like, well, right. He would describe it. <laughs> you know, he is it just me? He is it just me, or was Bradbury? Was he in this? Like the the Kemazots, That's a Bradbury town. Like the way yeah. that was described. Well, you know what? Like a, you know, you know what's really interesting, and that's something else that we can kind of talk to the readers about, or the listeners about. If you haven't read this, like this is there's a lot of there's a there's a lot of that totalitarianism, tyranny, yeah. and stuff that was happening in the '60s and '50s, certainly with McCarthyism and. Because that was the whole thing of it. It ran this this planet, this dark planet called Camazots, and everybody was alike. Nobody could think for themselves. Nobody was was an individual. As a matter of fact, if you were an individual, there's a little kid who was bouncing a ball like a little kid would bounce a ball. Who would throw it up and then let it land and bounce. However, right. and that kid got in trouble because all the other kids were bouncing it in, in like this one rhythm. So the kid that would bounce the ball out of rhythm was punished right and was quote unquote trained to not bounce it in the rhythm and would later come around to bounce it in the rhythm you know there's no individual everybody was like and there's like a central authority it was a central central intelligence which i thought was kind of funny so bradbury that came out i think 55 is that one four four that, five that one? sounds right yeah something like that 55 56 well, there's just so much i mean there's orwell there's bradbury yeah. there's so much reaction to totalitarianism out there yeah. at that time obviously, because that's what was happening in the world between the right, Nazis right. and the communists. And then I also think it's sort of a little bit like what Bradbury's doing in Fahrenheit is that there's this reaction to mass culture and mass media and like the suburbs and like the uniformity that's expected in those oh, that's places. A, that's an interesting point. So I hadn't thought of that. Of, yeah. sort, of, sort of complaints that would be made by different sides of the political spectrum yeah. today. Like I think the right would be the one talking about totalitarianism and the left to be the ones complaining about the suburbs, but it's it's all the same, right? It's, it's a criticism of both things in this particular yeah. world. There was a song. Um, I'm going to look this up real quick. It was called "Little Boxes." Do you remember, have you ever heard that uh -huh. song? Malvina Reynolds. It's the one that opens up uh, the sh the show Weeds. Y yeah, but it was well before Weeds. It was a song. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a. I think it's a folk song from the 50s or something. But it opened up the show Weeds because the show was all about a very cookie cutter type of suburban. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's um, absolutely totally apropos of what's going on in Camazots. Yeah. You know? And that, that, yeah, Camazots, they're all little boxes. So how much more apropos can you get when the song came out in 1962, yeah. right? But that's yeah, exactly it's, what it was. Uh -oh. Like every, every house is exactly the same. Like everybody, I think she even made the point of saying like every lawn was the same. Everything was exactly the same about every single place. Right. And so, yeah, so it's, it's really, there's a huge part of that, you know, with this book was that and if you think about it you know hitler um, mussolini or what uh would have been 15 17 years removed yeah no not far not far nope. back so she lived be like talking that. about be like talking about something from 2005 would be right. for us today exactly. it would be so very present very fresh know. and then and then stalin you know was in office and or was he killed by then did khrushchev take over in 61 62 in any case, you had the, the rise of the Soviet Union, the Maoists. So you had this sure. all, all these totalitarian kind of regimes around the world. Well, it was still going on. I mean, I mean, the Khmer Rouge didn't take power until like 1970. Yeah. You still have yeah. you still have dictators in Spain and Portugal into like yeah. the 80s. This stuff wasn't over for quite some time. And then the Soviet Union only fell in 1991. So she was she was kind of reacting, living in a reactionary time and her book sort of you know uh evidence is that i think that i, I got that exactly from Camazots, and, and that was another thing i had to kind of laugh at as i was reading it you know because so many of what we have read has that you know there's so much worry about yeah. totalitarianism totalitarian i was listening that second team totalitarianism that you just don't you probably wouldn't see that in the 70s you probably wouldn't see that in the 30s but just this one time period you really yeah most things smack of that. Yeah. So that's a, that's a pretty heavy theme, you know, for a, for a book for 11 and 12 year olds, you know, there's a lot of heavy themes. I was thinking um, the whole experience that Meg has 
where mm-hmm. she she's, gets caught up in this crazy situation and this crazy science fiction cataclysmic universal struggle between good and evil thing and she's counting on finding her dad and having her dad fix the situation yeah, i like that then, that was cool yeah. and then she finds him and it's like she's glad she found him but he's really not that helpful he's yeah. just a, he's just a person and i'm like see that's a metaphor for what happens when you grow up you're yes. like oh no the world's this terrifying scary place and my parents are just like they're gonna help me if they can but yeah, they're just like me. They don't know what they're doing either. Yeah, like, yeah, it's it's just as terrifying now that I've found my dad. Like, he doesn't yeah. know any, he doesn't know any more than I. Am. As a matter of fact, he's less helpful than I am. You know, in some ways, yeah, absolutely. That would be an idea that would be very good to introduce like ten and eleven year olds to, and it would be in the back of their minds because I think you're just right. sort of coming to that realization at that age. Yeah, you're just yeah. you're just starting to see right. the cracks in the. Uh, in the facade of your parents' perfection and superhumanity. Yeah, that's a sad uh, kind of coming of age time, right? When did like when did you first figure out that oh these people are just you know they're just as fragile and broken as I am and they don't know what they're doing? You know, not to get too real, but my huh? parents got divorced when I was a very small child, right? And they were both at like kind of a low. Mm-hmm. In my first my first memories of them were of them sort of dealing with the aftermath and the fallout of that situation. I just kind of, I, I didn't really see them, especially not like my mom who actually lived with, I, I never really saw her as being like flawless, you know? Yeah. So I, I didn't really have like a big, I guess I kind of realized my dad was a little bit of a mess too. And not a mess, but just like a regular person as I got older. Sure. So sure. I, don't, I don't have like a big moment for that. Do you? No, you know, I, I you know, we have, we share that in common. My dad, uh, split when i was like three i would say that i went for a pack of cigarettes never came back you know the bruce yeah Springsteen song what do dads go out for and not come back now like they can't go out for cigarettes anymore no, they, goes out for cigarettes. Like, they just leave ever there to begin with but um but yeah that's yeah no i i i kind of yeah i never grew up in the perfect household either i mean my my mom married a pretty terrible person and i had that as a as a stepfather all the way until until he died not too long ago yeah. So, so I never, I guess I never, I guess you're right. I never really had that facade that they could fix everything because they couldn't fix themselves. I mean, my mom, you know, was had a, a bit of a mess for a long time. So yeah, that illusion, I guess was pierced pretty early for us. Yeah. But I can see, you know, but it was a different time in the sixties and fifties for sure. I mean, you've got like the Andy Griffith show and, and Mayberry, you know, and, and uh, so you've got a, a time when the hero could fix everything and, and, uh-huh. You know what? I've, I've always thought of what happened in the 60s and 70s. And maybe this is because my parents were in the boomer generation. Mm-hmm. So they had this great big shared experience. But it seems to me like the experience of the 60s and 70s was that in 1961, everybody thought everything was perfect mm-hmm. and America was always good and right. And by 1975, we'd been through Vietnam and Watergate and everybody was just, it, it was like a national growing up and realizing we're just as flawed as everybody else. Maybe not as flawed as everybody else. We're not Nazi Germany, right. but we're not perfect. We're not Superman, you know? Right. And, and I think it was especially traumatic for a generation that was sort of going through those years anyway. So it was sort of like a, a, a shared national experience of like, uh, like a fall from grace or, or like a moment of losing faith in things. Right. And I think there's been a lot of that ever since. I think there's been a lot of like shaken faith in, in leadership. And I think people today, I think the experience of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have kind of left us in sort of a similar position where we're like, we're questioning ourselves. We don't have a lot of faith in ourselves as a civilization like we used to. Yeah. You know, there's been other experiences that have also shaken that. Nothing, nothing, I don't think quite as bad as Watergate. I think that was a major trauma for the country yeah. to lose faith in the leadership. But you know, I, don't know. I, I just I, I feel like I feel like Gen X, though, I don't, I don't know if our parents were like really boomer generation. Like my mom was born during World War Two. Not after my dad that. was born in 40. My dad is a classic boomer. He's born in 47. OK. And my mom was born in 49. So. All right. There. Yeah. If you're I guess if you're born during the war, it's probably not. That's probably something else. But yeah, I just like, mean, I think we, we grew up cynicism. Our generation like that's that's what defines Generation X, right? For most people, is like a cynical generation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the, the whole the whole grunge movement in the '90s was like a reaction to the uh, optimism of the '80s, right? That the but it was a it was a false optimism, and it was like it was almost like putting on a show. 
you know, like we're trying to get yeah. back, we're trying to get back to the forties and, and stuff like that. Well, it was a lot like what we talked about. It's like what we talked about with Bruce Springsteen. It was like a veneer of optimism, but I think yeah. underneath it wasn't you know, like Bruce Springsteen. That's like a symbol of eighties yeah. optimism, but then you listen to the lyrics and it isn't even yeah. that. Yeah. It wasn't like, like people were, were acting it, but they weren't, they weren't totally sold. And like, and Gen X was like, this is, this is stupid. Everything's falling apart. What was wrong with you people? Don't you know that? We forgot to talk about our drink. Oh yeah. Let's talk about our drink. Yeah. Let's talk about our grossly inappropriate drink for the season. FYI, here, here in Southern New Mexico, it's about 98 degrees. Oh God. Well, it's actually gone back down uh, two days ago. It was 91 in New York, which was like a record for May. But it's come back down to more like in the in the low 70s, which is OK. Oh, I can live yeah. with that. It's it's super humid. And we did have to get air, air conditioners installed because that was that was impossible. Yeah, it was like it was like trying to sleep in my mom's attic. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm up here on the top floor of this townhouse and it was like 85 degrees at night in the room and, and oh, it was impossible miserable yeah it was like in uh do the and do the right thing yeah that's exactly what i thought of when he told me that i was like oh it's just like do the right thing yeah it was exactly like that i could yeah i'm much more likely to go out and throw a chair through a glass window right now i'm very angry <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't even have any ethnic tensions to deal with but um yeah, so I looked it up. I looked up anything from Wrinkle in Time because I was trying to pick the drink like before I read the book. And I, and it's one of these things, one of the few things we've read where I'm like, I've never read the book. It's, yeah. I'm coming to it completely like for the first time. So I looked it up and somebody mentioned uh, hot chocolate, like a, like a rum and hot chocolate. So I was like, okay. And then I read the book and I was like, well, they talk about hot chocolate at the beginning of the book. They have hot chocolate as a family. It's not a central feature of the book by any means but anyway so that's what we ended up with so i've got i i actually couldn't find hot chocolate at the bodega so i got nesquik and i poured some rum into it heated it up and that's what i'm drinking it's, oh, it's fine I, yeah. I can drink this i might have over rummed it <laughs> nothing wrong with that little, but uh what kind of rum are you using it's really funny you should ask that i was actually hoping you wouldn't ask that oh, I am a, I am right. a, let's pretend yeah. i didn't ask no, 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 no. Because let, let's. Uh, Is this something you made yourself, and you're not allowed to talk about? No, it? no, no. I so I'm a judge for a for a spirit competition. It's called the uh, the John Barleycorn Awards, and it's uh, which it's I think a, is a website that you write for called uh, Barleycorn.com. Barleycorn drinks. Uh, yeah, barley, Barleycorn. Barleycorn drinks. Okay. Uh, dot com. But there, there's they run a you know a spirits competition. So I'm judging. I have 49 samples out in my garage right now. And I just got through the rum. I just got through the rum. So I, I graded the rum, how I, how, you know, it's all, obviously all subjective, but I graded the rum as an expert judge. And I used some of that rum in this hot coffee or hot, hot cocoa rather, just to right. see how it would taste. So I have no idea what rum I'm drinking. Um, okay. It's totally blind. It's a blind uh, totally blind. Oh, 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 oh. Like you literally could not have known. Oh, that's interesting. You're not going to hold the hot cocoa mixture against whatever company. <laughs> no, no. I used, I used the, uh, the, the, the better of, of all the rums that I tasted. So they're pretty good. So I have, I have some rums that okay. um, are, have, have quite a bit of age on them. Some that don't um, okay. and it mix really well. So I have no idea who it is. It could be anybody. I doubt it's like the most popular brand that I won't mention. Starts with the B, ends with an I. It's not uh-huh. like that. Um, they're going to be smaller brands, but they're bigger than like a like a totally regional craft. They'll be a you know an emerging brand or something like that. So, um, but they're pretty good. Wish I could tell you who it is. I guess if you want to know who it is, go to uh, John Barleycorn Awards. I don't know even know what the website is. Give it about a month. I'm, I I have Captain Morgan. <laughs> that <laughs> that might. I thought that might mix nicely with the hot hot cocoa, the uh, the spiced rum. That's what they have. At the, that's what they had at the bodega in the corner. Huh? No, 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 no. There's a, there's a really nice liquor shop uh, right right around the corner. I'm very lucky. There's a place you should look up. Do they still have the wine library in Brooklyn? Um, no, I don't know. I don't. I don't go to Brooklyn. I have not. No, I've been to Brooklyn. I've been to my mother-in-law's place, but I I don't go to Brooklyn very often. Oh, it's, it's, in, no, it's over. In, oh, it's over in New Jersey. I'm sorry. Oh, I definitely don't go to New Jersey. New Jersey is is Maryland. But when I grew up in DC, I just never went to Maryland for anything. If I, if I didn't have to, right? No, I, I get New Jersey is like that for me. Um, there's a guy named uh, Gary Vaynerchuk who's um, online influencer, and but he he sort of runs it. 
Well, so this is kind of a uh, comfortable drink to drink while talking about. I mean, the, I enjoyed. I really liked the first fifty pages or so. I mean, not that I didn't like the rest of it, but the first fifty pages. I like a lot of concrete setting and imagery and stuff like that, and I think that's why I sort of left the book the first time I wrote it. I read it because I, it, that part just it's it, it sets me in a place and the people seem real and stuff. And then for the rest of the book, like for instance, the character of Calvin, the, the older boy that goes along with them, I sort of ended up feeling like, was he necessary? Like, why did we need? And then there ended up being a lot of situations where there were a lot of characters standing around and I wasn't sure why there was, why there needed to be so many of them. Yeah. The, the part with the cocoa, you know, and the family is very uh, concrete. I like, I like the little family. Mm-hmm. And uh, the mom, like, pining for the dad and stuff. There was sort of like an adult reference there where she was like, she was like, you know, I'm still a very young woman and I really, really miss your dad. And I was like, <laughs> there was a bit of significance to make the mom as, I guess, laudable as she is, right? In 1961, you've got, you know, I think she has like multiple PhDs or something. And she's like, you know, a scientist and, and all this other stuff in her own right. And I think the there's a couple parts in the principal like kind of denigrate her like isn't your mom supposed to be like really smart or something like that? Meg's like yeah she holds multiple PhDs like basically she knows more than you ever will to the principal or something like that. So there and if you've ever seen Mad Men, like the model of a of a wife at that time was just just like stay silent right, stay in the kitchen and don't speak. So it was it was kind of cool to see that that she made you know the mom stand out as as much as she did you know i thought it was really cool in 1961 to see a oh right yeah see the mother as as like decorated or established or whatever you want to say as she's portrayed here just just the the portrayal of the women the two like the the young girl and the mom as being like these intelligent like capable like protagonist types right it's kind of a big deal in 1962. It seems obvious to us today. You know, we know Hermione Granger and all these characters. Right. It would almost be stranger if there was a very smart boy in a children's novel. It's almost like a stereotype today to have the main smart character be the girl. But that may come Meg. I'm not really sure. I was wondering that. Because somebody was, when they asked Madeline Lengel and she was like, yeah, you know, I thought it'd be great to give a bunch of the good lines and good thoughts to a girl character for once. Right. And I was thinking... I was thinking, is this real? Because there's, I feel like a female protagonists are pretty common in children's literature, you know, like Alice in Wonderland and like Dorothy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But they're not particularly bright, I guess. They're just, I mean, Dorothy's just kind of regular girl, and and now Alice is kind of actively anti-intellectual, right? Like she doesn't want to learn math or whatever it is she's working on at the beginning of the book. Right. So I was trying to think if this would have been the first character like that. And I, I, I couldn't give a good example off the top of my head. I, I could be wrong about that though. Can you think of anybody? But like Alice would, would have been like 1850, right? Or when did oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there's Jane Austen. I mean, Jane Austen's characters are like intelligent young women, you know? They are, uh, but they don't, they don't hold a place in society though. They're all, they're, their whole point is to get married. You know, their whole point is to get married. Exactly. Yeah. Golly, that's a that's a really good question. I, I, I can't off the top of my head. I think I think that the character of the mother would have been way ahead of the time in terms of um, a portrayal of like a woman with a Ph.D. You know, it was like a scientist and stuff like that. But the weird thing is, is even with that, what is she doing? She's like staying home with the kids while the dad goes to the lab every day. I guess. I mean, she has a lab herself outside in the garage, though, or whatever. She does. She you does. Know? But I think it's just kind of for fun that she's working there. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be part of any research or anything. But she definitely, even with that, Madeline Lengel assumes the mother will be at home with the children. <laughs> That's a good, is, a good Which point. is, you know, not really, not really my experience, obviously. Yeah. But in 1962, maybe that would have just been like, what are you talking about? The mother has a job. She has right, children. Right. That's her job. Right. You know? Yeah. I didn't really think of that while I was reading it, but I, I didn't know. I did notice the other planet that they got, Camazots, they're talking about the dads going off to work and the mothers staying home with the children. I'm like, see these assumptions that people made. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've known, but they always have these assumptions make in, in old science fiction that the social stuff won't change. It'll just be different technology. Right. <laughs> you know, all the time, you know? Sure. No, that's a really good point. The, the mom is always going to, be at home but i think i don't know maybe this is even even what she 
was able to write. And actually, if you think of her own life, so her husband, they lived in Connecticut, right? And I think she wrote this book, if I remember correctly, when she was in Connecticut. And oh, is that right? I wasn't at some points in their life. They lived in New York. I was kind of curious because well, she, she did. She lived in New York. I think her husband was like um, an actor, I believe, wasn't he? And could be, could be. That's interesting. I, I think so. In New York is like a Broadway actor, but he decided to like give up because, you know, it's a very itinerant type of type of uh, lifestyle and career. And so once they had children, he decided to give it up, and like have like a real job or something like that. So they moved to I think like Connecticut. She lived in a small town and she, I think that's when she wrote this, if I remember correctly. And then they moved back to New York and again, he became an actor again. I was, um, I was very struck by the fact, I was very struck by the story that she came up with the idea for the story. They had lived in some other city. Um, maybe it was California. I don't know, but they, she said that they were moving back into New York city and they took a, like a 10 week camping trip right going across the country yeah. and she was talking about traveling in places like new mexico and arizona and i was like yeah. we just i just went through like a multi-week camping trip with my kids while moving to new york city i was like it's very for some reason that story really sticks in my head because i know exactly what that means so i thought that was kind of funny but apparently oh. some people inspired by that experience and come up with a book i was just <laughs> I was just completely, you know, destroyed by that experience, but <laughs> you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait for it to be over. huh? No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it was, it was fun, but I'm only now recovering from it. Let's just say, you know, like finally getting settled in and like sleeping well at night again. And so the, the, the move was just a nightmare. It wasn't even really so much the camping trip for the kids. It was the move. Well, she wasn't, she wasn't moving. She was just, she was just traveling cross country. Yeah. She that was, was a yeah, novel. Was, that was a novel thing. Like you had to, you had to like drive 50 miles an hour. On, on terrible roads back then with, you know, terrible headlights that were like glowworms and in, in jars, basically. Yeah. What did you do about making a reservation at a, at a hotel? Like you didn't, you just, you just showed up somewhere and hope showed up and hope they had, wow. Well, that, don't, don't you remember, dropped. don't you remember the, uh, the signs that said vacancy, no vacancy? Yes. Well, they signs? still have those. They still yeah, have well, those. That's why they had those signs. So you're yeah. driving down the road. And you see this this hotel coming up, and on the sign with in neon it says no vacancy or vacancy. And you're like, okay, we can get a room there, and you pull in, and then it would also say like air conditioner, which you could use, or TV or whatever it happened to be. Or right? HBO, yeah. yeah HBO. There was a there was a goofy cartoon when I was a kid. There was a goofy cartoon where he was on a road trip with his family, and they wanted to stay at a hotel, and everything was booked up, and I could still see he's like driving. And I was like. No vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. And yeah, that's that's sort of what they did. I, I remember just at the very end of all of that, because my grandparents would pick my brother and I up in the 70s. As Again, uh -huh. we, we had a broken home and stuff. And so my grandparents would pretty much take us for the entire summer uh, because they felt, felt bad for us because it was their kid that left us. And so they take oh, us. Oh, it, it, it was your father's parents. That would yeah, but they were, they were, they were fantastic. I mean, they, they made up. Well, they tried to make up for him and they, they did a good job, but oh, uh, they, take, they, they take us for the entire summer and we would go on these like two or three month long road trips with World War II generation, you know, my grandpa oh, wow. was in World War II. I mean, you know, and in, a, in an old truck, well, an old truck, it was a 76, so it was a new truck at the time, 1976 Chevy with a camper on it. And we go camping everywhere. We go, we go fishing everywhere. It was at the very tail end. I mean, so this would have been like 17 years, 15 years removed from when she wrote this book and went on this trip herself. You would see, we wouldn't stay at hotels. We'd stay at KOAs, like campgrounds. Were a I love deal, K right? I love KOA. K I stand have the by same K thing. They'd have like a vacancy, no vacancy, you know, pool or, you know, laundry room or whatever. I mean, there, there were some interstates back then, but not a lot would mostly travel highways. I can kind of see that, you know, that what that what she was going through. And it you've got a lot of time on your hands, man, because you don't have you don't have satellite radio. You've got yeah. we had an AMF. I think actually we had an AM radio in the in the truck. They had an eight track player and like a CB. Like if you run out of eight tracks and there's no radio to listen to, you would actually listen to the CB and you listen to like truckers talking back and forth. I can see her it's doing that because you, it's like, it's almost like meditation, like force, like the most creative you'll ever be is if you have no cell signal, right? right. No cell signal. 
there's, you have no TV, nothing like that. You're forced to be inside your head and to think of things. Right. And that's what she did, you know, for however long she was on that trip. And she came yeah, I remember this. hearing a story about how James Cameron came up with for the idea for Terminator while he was like long haul trucking. Yeah, I can see that. And I and I and I and I, and I remember we read the thing about Dr. Seuss being sick on the ship and like having nothing to do, so we thought of that. Or right. the the cabin where Mary Shelley and and Lord Byron and and uh, and Polidori they all got stuck there, and one of them wrote the first vampire novel, and the other one wrote the first you know Frankenstein novel, and we don't get downtime like that anymore. We don't. That's just not a thing. Oh, that's, that's just that's not a thing. thing. I am, no, I, I have good ideas occasionally in the shower. Literally, I'll take a shower, and that's yeah. when I think of something because it's the only time of the day where I don't have. You know, well, for one thing, I have kids, so you never have any good ideas. Kids are constantly <laughs> right, talking. Right. To you. No, but but even if I'm not with my kids, I go for a walk and I put on a podcast or something. You know, yeah. Not no, that right. people should stop listening to podcasts; they should definitely listen to podcasts. Absolutely. Um, no, listen to more podcasts. Make that point. Well, I think we're getting kind of we're getting kind of far into the show, right? Should we talk about what our biggest surprise was? Yeah. You want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. I was just going to mention there was an interesting discussion that I read about where people were talking about. Newberry books, right? Mm-hmm. And I was looking at that list of Newberry Award winners, and they were a bunch of the books that we read when I was in elementary school. Yeah. And so there was, you know, some people saying, oh, these are great. And then another group of people complaining that these aren't really for children, that these books are like the kind of books that turn children off from reading because they're oh. too difficult. And I was thinking, I really liked some of the books we read, but this one turned me off from reading. I did not like reading this book oh. when I was a kid. And I was thinking, how is it a book for children? If it's written so that adults will give it an, an award, how is that a book for kids? I mean, it's just the characters are children, but there's really nothing else about this book that's particularly child-oriented. Otherwise, it's a Ray Bradbury novel, right? <laughs> well, C.S. Lewis. I guess like it's that. not. Um, it's not as technical as as a like a Bradbury, right? So, right. There's something to yeah. say about, and even like if you think about it. Like Harry Potter, for example, the very first Harry Potter versus the last Harry Potter, the very first one isn't that descriptive. I mean, he, you know, she talks about Rowling talks about characters and stuff, but she doesn't. If you've ever, I mean, just physically see the difference between the first book and the last book, it's half yeah. half the length, right? And so much of that is the description and everything else that she inputs into the the last one, and I think that might be a big part of it. Like Dr. Zeus says, you know, he'll he'll create this fantastic character, but he doesn't go into description. I mean, he draws it. Yeah. He doesn't yeah, give yeah. you the backstory. He doesn't tell you all about it like Bradbury might. Um, and she sort of does the same thing here. I mean, she, in, in my opinion, she does a terrible job of telling us about Mrs. What's It, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. Witch. We know not, really nothing about him except for like this weird centaur, except he's not a centaur. You know, and looks nothing like a centaur except he's a centaur. I um, yeah, you know that was that was funny because that was the description. So Meg was trying to describe the creature, uh-huh. and she was like, essentially, Meg says it was like a you know it was like a thing that was like a uh, you know like not a centaur. And so I'm like, okay, it's a centaur. Like that's what I'm picturing oh, as a centaur. Like, oh, I'm well, like she she tells us what he's like, body of a horse, right? Yeah. And then, like, you know, yeah. and then a human torso up, but nothing like a centaur. And I'm like, that's exactly totally what not a centaur. centaur is. I thought that was interesting because I was I was thinking, are these really books for kids or are they something somebody writes to try and to get awards? I don't know, because I, this was difficult for me to read as a kid. Didn't really click for me as a child. I, I got through it just fine this time. I think there's a there's an assumption, though, that the parents are going to be involved. Right. Like I was assigned this stupid book. At, you know, fifth grade or whatever it was, and I have no recollection of it. But you know, nobody in my in my household ever read anything to me. Nobody, like I never, no. you know. Despite you can interview my mom, she'll be like, "Oh yeah, I read books all the time." No, she never read any books to me. But I think, <laughs> but I think there's an assumption that like the parents are involved in this, right? Because she even talked about like you know, if you read her biography, she read this to her kids. Like nobody wanted to publish this, but she read it to her kids and her kids are like, we love this. Keep, keep reading it to us. Right. Okay. So she read it to her kids as, as at nighttime, excuse me. And so I think there's an assumption of like the Newberry 
parents will be involved. Parents will read it to the children. And so if, if, if that's the case, I'm just saying if, I don't know if it's true or not, but if that's the case, you have to have something that will at least keep the parents' attention as well as the kids, which is difficult to do, right? Oh, see, something. that's something that changed. That's something that changed in movies when we were kids, or maybe even a little bit after we were little kids, mm-hmm. is they started throwing in like jokes for adults right. into into kid movies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that didn't used to happen. And all of a sudden, right around 1989, 1990, there started being like the, the movie was like a little bit winky for the grown-ups. Yeah. Because yeah. somebody had yeah. to take right. the kids to see the movie. Right. You didn't want the parents being completely bored but i mean I, think- I read i read to my kids i read to my kids very regularly and anything like i'm reading uh the lord of the rings trilogy with my son and i don't think he would enjoy reading it by himself because if he gets confused he asks me right. you know what's going on here who's this person that i'm was, like well oh, they're a, this. that was a tough one to do too because i mean you know there's a lot of circling back and a lot of like oh yeah talking about you know and actually i would say that that like if you've ever read the um, the the books the the, the series that um, the Martin the J R G R Game of Thrones yeah Game of Thrones like the 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 books that those are based on I've read all of those and he'll he'll reference stuff in you know book three from you know a paragraph that happened in book one you know sure and, yeah and and Tolkien does the same thing like he'll reference Absolutely. something you know way you know towards the end of something that happened way at the beginning and you know it's it would be so easy for a kid to be like wait what what are you talking about yeah and then well it's easy for it's easy for a grown-up to be like that you better have notes right (laughs) yeah exactly so well anyway so so what was your so what what was your biggest surprise about reading this your previous memory of this has been completely erased essentially so no yeah i don't i don't remember it i remember other kids loving this a lot more than me yeah Uh, me too and my memory i was like and i was like girls yeah yes especially yeah. girls and i was like i think at the time i was like i don't see what the big deal is i didn't really right you know whatever it's just a book that i had to read for class right but now reading okay so a couple of things i was really so i read you know obviously we go and we do the deep that kind of the deep dive on the stuff she was she was really into physics she got really into physics and that's where a lot of the stuff came from for her like the space right. time you know, E equals MC square and all that other stuff that's in the book. So that was all a part of it, um, which I thought was really cool. But in a first draft, well, not a first draft, but in an earlier draft, Charles Wallace, she tells Meg that Charles Wallace is a mutant and the next stage in human evolution. Okay. And I was like, X-Men. I mean, this is, that's exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was th- yeah. that's exactly what, it's like, Charles Wallace versus Charles Xavier. Wait, what? Oh, oh. Yeah. So that was that was a big surprise to me. I'm like, well, when was the first? When was the first Uncanny X Men? It's right. A, it's um, about 1963. It, it, it was no. I think it was later in the 60s. But I was wondering. I was like, okay. Does Stan Lee have any knowledge of that at all? You know? Oh, I wouldn't be this, surprised at all. We have Tesseract. This, yeah, Tesseract. I mean, that fits. Tesseract right shows up. I mean, there's. Um, yeah, definitely. And and uh, Charles Wallace like had this. He was all mental, right? It was all mental. And Charles yeah. Xavier is Doctor Charles Xavier is all well. Doctor Charles Xavier, you know, it's all he's the most powerful mental mutant, you know, on Earth, and blah blah blah. I'm like, to me, that that sort of blew me away, actually. That yeah. Charles Wallace was supposed to be this mutant superhero, <laughs> basically, and she changed it. You know, after like the third or fourth revision to whatever she said that that he's different or whatever he's special or really he's watered sport. him. Yeah, he's a sport. Well, no, sport. Mrs. Uh, Murray, Mrs. Murray didn't say that. That was what Calvin said. But Mrs. Murray said, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. That that like like he's different or he's special. I think or something like that. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. So that really, I, I I was like, holy cow! I wonder if there's any connections here between. You know, and I'm an X-Men geek, you know, a Marvel geek. So yeah, I was sure, like, wow. Sure. Anyway, that's sort of where I got it. I started reading the original X-Men recently, but I can't remember what year it came out. We could probably look if we only had this little. I mean, I think box. I think the Marvel, the original Marvel stuff, Marvel stuff is influenced by everything in the science fiction zeitgeist. It's yeah. just everything is in that. So 
I wouldn't be surprised at all if it was in, especially children's literature about sci-fi, because there wouldn't have been much of it. Yeah, my my biggest surprise in reading this was the um when when Jesus comes up, and I I was suddenly like, oh, this is like this reminds me of C.S. Lewis. This is very much like I don't know if it's any kind of story about Christianity, but it's strange. It would be strange today to read something science fiction and have Christianity and religion be so strongly referenced, right? So that was yeah. surprising to me. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Like, that's where this is coming yeah. from. Well, and it was where it was coming from. She, she explicitly said this book is about her feelings on religion. Not, not that this is right. any kind of allegory for Christianity or anything, but it expresses her feelings about religion. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, the struggle funny, between though. good and evil, you know, and a pervasive darkness taking everything over. That's, that's one way to view Christianity. And, and Meg saves her brother with love. You know, which is sort of a Christian message, and so it, but it's it's thematically Christian, if you know what I mean. Not so much. Uh, well, well, what was interesting about that is she got hassle from both sides. She got hassle yeah. from the I fundamental know. Christians who like, you know, it's too like mystical and blah blah blah. And then um, she like personally believed that there's um, in this, and I can't remember what it's called, but this theory that like basically everybody will be saved. And, you know, fundamentalist Christians are like, no, that's not what it is. And so they, the fundamentalist Christians banned her. Okay. And then the other side said it's too Christian, you know? And, and so they banned her uh, in, in like schools and libraries and stuff like that. So she was getting it from both sides, Um, which is kind of like, you know, you can't, by the way, so the very first X-Men comic book, you ready? You're good. 1963. Okay, yeah, okay. That's what I was thinking. So two years later. Right. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's some connection there. I, I think so. I, I I like I said, I think Stan Lee was just cribbing from everything he possibly could and the ideas were out there. And it's fine. It's what it's what's fun about it. You know, it's sort of a amalgamation of everything that was yeah, out yeah, there. So course, yeah. so um the big question, the big question here is uh it, this is my choice, so it's really only up to you. Yeah. Are we toasting this classic? Are we raising our mugs of hot cocoa with rum in them? <laughs> is very very not hot anymore um no so uh i guess i guess it comes down to like what would we toast it as like for a classic so is this like you know some master piece of of literature would i rank it with maybe like would, would it be ranked as highly as like a hemingway novel or maybe old man in the sea or something like that and the answer, no, I think you got to compare it to what it yeah, is. Yeah, the, the answer is obviously no. So it has to be where it's at. And I think I think yes. I think yes, and this is why. Because I think one of the things in the backstory of this is it was it was turned down from numerous publishers. Like no publisher would would publish this book. Right. And this is even after she's she'd had like six books published, right? And the problem was no publisher knew what to do with this. Like it, they thought it was too advanced for a kid's book. Um, uh-huh. It was too stupid for, you know, an adult book. And it was too far out, you know, sci-fi wise. So nobody knew what to do with it. And so she was, and I'm, I'm kind of in that midst now, man. I like rejection after rejection after rejection for my book. Oh, right. Right. And, and, and yeah. so. Yeah. I know a little something about that. Yeah. And so, but eventually, you know, somebody found it and said, you know, I think this will, I think this will work. And so the story is, I can't remember his name, uh, Ferrar or something like that is the name of the, the publisher. Yeah, it's Ferrar Struk. Ferrar, right, yeah. So he sent it off to an outside reader to, to have it evaluated. The outside reader wrote back and said, this is the worst book I've ever written or I've ever read, <laughs> okay? Yeah. And Ferrar said, that clinched it. He's going to publish it. Like, wow. I was like, thank, you know, thank God for people like you, you know? Wow. When and, and I don't know what the backstory. There's got to be some kind of backstory in that reader. Maybe he knew that. Yes, he doesn't have a lot of respect for that reader. Huh? Exactly. Like this is the worst story I've ever read. Okay. Well, I have a feeling what your your one reader you had that gave you the the terrible you know comments that like you, yeah. you're supposed to be black to write the story. I feel like anything that person rejected would probably be on my list of something I should probably read at least. Give yeah, a well, same here. I really didn't have a lot of respect yeah. for that opinion. Yeah, I mean, think, I'm still working at it, man. I'm still working at it. Well, let me let, let me let me ask you this: this huh? this book is this book is the first book of a quintet, 
Mm-hmm. The five books in this series is about these same characters. Yeah. Do you have any interest in finding out what happens in a swiftly tilting planet, the second book? Nope. Okay. Nope. Okay. I, I don't. But you know what? But here's the thing, though. I'm going on a, a, a no, not a fairly long road trip. I mean, you know, a decent road trip. We're going to Phoenix uh, this weekend. Okay. So it's about five hours. Uh, I'm going to buy the audio book and play it for my kids and just to see. Okay. Right? Because we, 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 we typically do that. So I'm going to find out, like, let's see what they say. Like if they want to say, you know, want to hear more, I'll buy the second one. And, and then we'll listen yeah. to it on the way back. So, cause it's about, I would say it's probably about five, six hours long, something like that. Yeah. Um, that's probably about right. And, and we'll see what they say. So I, see, think, I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to find is that, there's not a lot of meat here. Yeah. You know, not, not a lot happens in this story. Right. Right. There's not a lot of imagery that you're going to be left with for the rest of your life. It deals with some pretty uh, mundane science fiction concepts for today's audience. This is 60. This book is 60 years old. Right. It's, it would have been cutting edge, bleeding, cutting edge science fiction at the time, talking about tesseracts and relativity. Right. But today, any 10 year old has heard of that stuff. I think, I think that the only thing, that would be a, so I've got a 15 year old, you know, right. so, so who can identify with Meg? You know, there's, there's a lot of the anxiety that, that young teenagers feel, teenage girls feel in this. And book. she's just finding out what, what a useless uh, sack of uh, skin her father is. At this point <laughs> right. Well, that's especially true that, that, that actually yeah. more than anything else she'll right. identify with. Yeah. So well, we'll see. I'll, I'll have to report back next time. All right. I'm actually interested to hear how that goes. That'll be, that'll right. be an interesting experiment. So um, what, are you, what are we doing? Are we toasting? We're toasting. Yeah. Oh, we are. We are toasting. Yeah, we are toasting. Yeah. Clink. Oh. Well, again, because we're toasting, we're toasting for what it is, right? Again, what it is and for what it was at yeah. its time. I guess. We're, not, yeah. we're not competing with Hemingway or Faulkner. We're, we're, we're toasting it for what it is. So. Okay. Toast. All right. Then Gross. glasses up. All right. Well, um, are we want to talk about what we're going to do on the next show or. I, I have no idea what we're going to do. Uh, I have okay. thought, I, I right. thought actually there's, um, so the next one would be a movie and it'd be my pick, right? Correct. So I'm thinking uh, the movie, The Longest Day. Have you ever seen that movie? I have. Yeah, that's a good one. I think I think that would yeah. be a fun one to do. Um, it's an old one. Sure. It's a World War II kind of classic, but it has everybody in it from a young Sean yeah, Connery to a- Everybody from Sean Connery to John Wayne. To John Wayne, right. Um, so- yeah. I think that would be an interesting, interesting one to, to do. And just to, you know, to talk about the history, because you're, you're, you have something to do with history. Oh yeah. You majored in it. So yeah. you know, I think that would be a, that'd be a fun one to do. So that's what I'm thinking of. That worked for you. Okay, cool. Yeah. That sounds great. Cool. All right. And so let's, can I do, uh, before, before we end, can I do a shameless plug? Yeah, definitely. All right. So um, as, as Dave mentioned, I'm trying to get a book published. It's called people's beer brewing and bigotry in America. It's about the first black, brewer uh the black first black president of a brewery in the u.s a guy named ted mack amazing story 1970 he uh, put together a group of black business people who um who bought a, a, a historic brewery in oshkosh wisconsin moved to the middle of uh of of very lily white america to to run this brewery um okay. i wrote a, i wrote a book about him about about uh, what happened. It's called, uh, again, people's beer, brewing and bigotry in America. Um, trying to get it published. And the more support I can get, uh, like the more supporters I can show, uh, the more likely it will be published by a, by a publisher. So if you were to go to peoplesbeerbook.com, all, all one word, peoplesbeerbook.com, and then just enter your email and name, uh, I would really appreciate it. And I could show the publishers Hey, I've got all the support, you know, guaranteed people that might buy the book. So, yeah, great. Yeah, That's everybody it. get out there and go uh, click on that and uh, put your emails in, and you'll know when the book finally happens. Yeah, It'll be the first one. Sure. Definitely. Cool. Um, so, I guess we're going to sign off for Toasting the Classics for this week. I'm Dave Arthur. I'm Clint Lanier. Thanks, brother. See you guys next time. Bye. That's it for episode 56 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, Get some Steel Reserve Lager for next time where we'll be discussing Isaac Asimov's novel Caves of Steel. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. 
Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and remind us of any strong, intelligent female protagonists that predate Meg. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @reactivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Mm-hmm.